what we need to clearly say and reiterate is there are things that I believe because they're true. There are not things that are true because I believe them. Hello and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse. And I'm your co-host, Cameron McAllister. Cameron, there's an idea that has kind of tangentially popped up in several conversations that you and I have had recently where there's an idea that you're critical of, and I give a little bit of weight to, but I want to help. I want you to help me find the right balance here, and maybe our listeners can help us as well. And it has to do with, with the degree to which we set aside our Christian beliefs while doing our jobs. Now, before you think like, oh, no, you can't do that. We're, we're not talking about integrity here. We're not talking about morality or convictions or anything like that. Um, I'll give two examples of, of ways in which this has been used, and then you can clarify a bit. So one is we recently did a podcast on the debate with James Tor, and he would say, look, when I'm speaking about these things, I set aside my Christian beliefs, and I'm just looking at the science here. Mm-hmm. I think you've also talked about Mike Lacona saying, um, you know, when I put on my historian hat, I set aside my Christian beliefs and I just look at things historically. And I think I'm sympathetic to that view and it makes you wince a little bit. So tell me, tell, tell us for a minute, uh, what you see going on there and what the cautions are. Well, it strikes me as a strange claim because on the one hand, if you are a Christian, you are a person inhabited by the Holy spirit and, I don't know whether it's possible to bracket your convictions in that way. There's a term here that may be somewhat useful, methodological naturalism. And there are different ways that you can you can define that. I think essentially what it means is you willingly set aside or suspend your religious convictions while you're in a very specific context. So it's it's kind of a specialized form of contextualization. So if you're a scientist working in a lab, you limit your, your understanding or you, your framework narrows to your, the scientific assumptions or the scientific enterprise before you. If you're a historian, you, you put on your historian's hat, try to approach the material with as open a mind as you can and be impartial. So I would say, Nathan, the crux of my issue here is twofold. The one, On the one hand, it strikes me as inaccurate and bordering on disingenuous to suggest that you can set your Christian beliefs neatly aside like that. And two, I don't think there is such a thing as an impartial view. Okay. I think that's a fantasy. Yep. So I'll I'll agree with you on the fact that I don't think there's such a thing as an impartial view. However, there there has to be a line we can draw in between here. So let's take something, let's start simple and then work our way toward the complex. So I believe that three plus three equals six. And that that belief or that form of knowledge, I would say is independent of me being a Christian. That when Muslims add three plus three, when atheists add three plus three, we, we get six. That's so, so I, so at that level, I can say, yeah, I think there are things that are true. That's why I believe them. They aren't true because I believe them. You're, you're talking about a category where somebody might be speaking, say, as a Christian on origins of life research, as a Christian, you're saying they have a pre- committed idea to the outcome, or they're speaking about it as an atheist and they have 
a preconceived idea about it. Um, or somebody's doing history about the historicity of Jesus, but they already worship Christ. Is it, so is it, so I'm, I guess I'm saying, are there categories where th that overlaps in your critique is true, but categories where it doesn't, or do you think that my belief well, in math is informed by my faith? It seems to me that there are two different things going on here, Nathan. On the one hand, we can, uh, I will, I will agree with you. We can firmly establish our, our, the, our facts, whether mathematical, scientific, or mechanical, or, you know, societal, that are independent of one's religious convictions. Yes. But I think the question here is not whether there are facts that are independent of our religious convictions. My question would be, if you're doing major research, is it possible for your religious convictions to not play a part in shaping the way you look at it, your interpretations, the way you think about your subject and the conclusions you're going to draw. Okay. I that hear your question, but, to me. but let's, let's make it harder. Sure. Why did, do, why does it, why does it have to be religious beliefs or convictions? Right. And so, I was just going there. So it, okay. it doesn't. So carry on then. Is there well, such a thing as a non-biased observer? The, that's what you're asking. Right. So that's the heart of, of my problem here, that there is no, there, there's no unbiased observer. There's no impartial view. There isn't any neutral ground. So in essence, now some, some of our listeners are going to be a little nervous when I say that because this was one of the valid points of deconstructionism. Now, I don't think it follows from that, by the way, that then all facts are up in the air and the question of whether we have access to capital T truth or tr reality is completely up in the air. We don't know. And, you know, extreme skepticism dominates or total relativism. I don't think that's what we take away here at all. But I do think it means that all of us as human beings are personal observers. And I am dr drawing my thinking here, not from Jacques Derrida, not from Michel Foucault, but from Michael Polanyi, who was himself a chemist, actually, by day. That was his day job. But he's probably best known as an epistemologist, an even more le le less flattering sounding <laughs> You just don't see many bumper title. stickers. And of course, epistemology, one of the most important fields right now in philosophy, it's really just, it's all about how we know what we know. And Polanyi's masterpiece, Personal Knowledge, makes that very point. At, he was he's speaking as a scientist, but he says everybody, scientists, every, all all people who lay claim to any expertise, and those who are who are just regular folks, all of us have a inherently personal perspective. All of our knowledge, and it is knowledge. We have real knowledge. The phrase he uses is "we make contact with reality," but it's personal knowledge. That doesn't mean it's all fundamentally compromised, but it does mean we lay claim to a finite, personal, human perspective. And so what that calls for is not a total renunciation of the truth. It calls for humility. And so, but back to circle back to where, where, where we were at the beginning, it seems to me that methodological naturalism, if what Michael Polanyi is saying is true, methodological naturalism would seem from a philosophical standpoint to me to be misguided. But so well, to that, well, hang on, it could be when, worse than that though. It could be worse than that because sure. if we bring in a little Alvin Plantinga here where he talks, you know, mm -hmm. I'm thinking specifically his book where the conflict really lies on the conflict right. between naturalism and science. 
he would say that in order to have a naturalistically developed perspective of epistemology that was confident of the certainty of human observation is pretty low. So I think so oh, I, yes. I get and so I'm wondering if there's an in-between line here where you can say, as a Christian, I have a better epistemological foundation for the certainty of my observation than methodological naturalism. But yeah, I don't know. So methodological so, naturalism is, I think, is giving too much away and more away than it needs to in that sense. Because you're you're right, Nathan. And I don't know if you remember, but in the Q&A ses- session, somebody raised a Plantinga-like question for Dave Farina uh-huh. yeah. at the end saying, "How do you tr- basically, how can you trust your mind? And Dave Farina gave the typical answer. Well, here we are. I'm thinking right now. So essentially, he doesn't answer it at all. He just says, look, brute fact is I have a I have a mind. It functions. Reason functions. But so he didn't he neatly sidestepped the question with a tautology, basically. And that's what people often do. But so if you go to that governing assumption, let's say the Christian is open and puts his or her cards on the table and says, no, I'm a Christian. This informs the way I think about science. It informs the way I, I live my life. It informs the way I handle my finances. And, you know, side note, your atheism, your skepticism is going to do the same thing, by the way. Mm-hmm. You're any, no matter who you are, whatever your assumptions are, they're going to inform the way you approach reality and the way you live your life. So the Christian says that, and the Christian then says, on my view, the world was created by a supremely rational and relational being, God, who is not only not only there, but has revealed himself decisively to us in his son, Jesus Christ. And not only that, we as human beings are made in the image of God. So on my so view, I, the fact yeah. that the universe is understandable and legible makes sense. The fact that you have a mind that is reliable and actually can make contact with reality, that makes sense. But on the naturalistic account, if your brain is a byproduct of random unguided forces, it becomes a whole lot more problematic to establish the knowability of reality and the function of your reasoning faculties. So a couple things there. So I'm wondering though, if there's a distinction between saying, um, here are two people, one's a Christian, one's not describing an amino acid. Mm-hmm. So, so I think this is where science markets, it's markets itself as a purely secular endeavor to say this, this same thing happens in every single condition in every single part of the world observed by every single person. So there's that, but then it seems like your your other commitments well, about what that means are different. Okay, but let's. I think that's fair. So yeah, you're you're both observing the behavior of an amino, an amino acid. So what does you know your devotions? What part that you did that morning? What part? <laughs> well, do it's those right there in the Leviticus. In that observation. Well, obviously, probably nothing at all. But I think. Now we have to look at proper definitions here. Okay, so when you look at science, the hard sciences, that's usually those are usually limited to causality. And you know, the broad way of putting it would be how questions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But anything that enters into the interpretation 
the the broader implications and interpretations of your findings of your observations what you you know the conclusions you draw about the overall state of reality from those observations now we're moving into science, into philosophical territory and that's where it's but see those those lines get blurred often so again but even if so if what i've just said is true and, and if we look at science from that very narrow perspective in the same way that you know the mechanics if somebody is a car mechanic they're when they're up, when they're working on a car they're in a very narrow field that is limited to the machinery of vehicles Thank it makes goodness. sense for that discipline Thank goodness. And that narrow focus enables them to be really effective at what they're doing and not give you some kind of malfunctioning vehicle. Same with, with the hard sciences. If this is, but if that's true, then methodological naturalism wouldn't be necessary. You would, you would simply be observing the, the, the needed phenomenon. And there would, there's no need for you to set, why would you need to set your Christian convictions aside or why would you need to make that statement often i think that statement's made to appease the scientific elites where atheism or skepticism is a dominant view and i think there's enormous pressure on christians in working in those fields and there are many christians in the hard sciences particularly in in, in physics but i don't think now it's an understandable motivation i don't think it's necessarily a good one so and here's the thing is is that it's so the the idea that you're positioning is that the Christian in the lab doesn't need to set aside their faith um and that the statement to say that I'm setting aside my faith to be an objective observer is unnecessary because those aren't conflicting categories in the first place. I would add another degree of complication to say that and this is um what was Thomas Kuhn's book? Uh, on this the structure of scientific structure revolution. Of scientific, structure of scientific revolutions. Yeah. yeah. So um, I had an honors philosophy of science class in college that was definitely one of my favorite. Um, and one of the great things is that one of the chemistry professors from the school was also taking the class just as a, you know, for the fun of it. Hmm. Um, and he was deeply, con uh, yeah, he was irritated by the class because Thomas Kuhn is basically saying that Science does not work the way that people think it works. That by and large, mm -hmm. you have these paradigm shifts, these accidental discoveries where you observe something that happens and you don't know how, you know that it happens, and then you do the background work to kind of the mop yeah. up science to figure out how it actually works. And so you're working with a preconceived notion of what the conclusion will be when you're doing a lot of the yeah. science to get to what you know works, which flies in the face of every little um, scientific process circle that you drew in sixth and seventh grade of how this thing goes. And so the philosophy behind the, the, the biased or the preconceived notions that are inherently smuggled into any scientific endeavor would, I would think, be at least equal in their bias as somebody who lays out their bias and is aware of it going into the conversation. Yes. Well, I mean, the nature of a scientific discovery is usually such that it has to deviate from all of the standards and norms that have been established. And so one of the things that Kuhn and others like him who work on a field broadly, I think that's now sometimes called the sociology of knowledge. But what they point out is that when the scientific community resists a breakthrough theory, 
they're doing their job. They're being good mm, gatekeepers, right. and they're and they're holding on to those norms now. But they also might be preserving of, their funding. So yes, they might be. Yes, are there? Yeah. So are there political motivations in all of this? Of course there are. Again, and that's see again. I've I've heard a lot of people come after Thomas Kuhn and say, oh, he's a relativist, and no, he's not. Well, he's pointing out he's he's very he's deconstructing the scientific enterprise and pointing out that it's nothing more than a series of political motivations. No, 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 he's not. He's showing that it's a human institution. People have very superstitious views of the hard sciences because they're sort of one of the last remaining major authorities with regard to truth in the modern world. The church isn't viewed in those terms anymore. The scientific community has been. I think that's dwindling a little bit. I think COVID-19 and the whole pandemic did it did some serious damage to the credibility and the and, and it sowed a lot of distrust about the scientific community no, well, as well. So so hang but on a second. Still, hang on a second. A, because a you can't so with but with pure science you can't damage it. You so you can you can take a stab at scientism, I think, which is an overly mm -hmm. conflated philosophical set of assumptions that goes around science and it has its cultural and political implications to it. But when you get down mm -hmm. to it, the, the 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 hard and pure sciences in and of themselves are fairly universally accessible, and the conclusions are can be to the best of what humans can know concrete. Because, and here's the big because, because you use this word, and I want to get back to it. You talked about the scientific community, and mm -hmm. so that's the whole thing within science and peer reviewed journals is somebody discovers something, and in order for the scientific community to say that that is true, other people have to be able to replicate it and do it and observe it and confirm that that is in fact the thing. So right. you need, within the scientific community, you need other people to be able to validate the, the validity of a statement or a belief. And I would say that's exactly how Christian epistemology works as well, that we want to be careful not to truncate all of our known knowledge into individual experience but that a right. big part of the reason you believe things is because other people believe them to be true as well. And there's this kind of um, triangulation of perspective that helps us get a better handle and view on things. So I don't see them as working. We're getting a little niche here, but it, it's not off in the weeds. It's important to say that there are biases within scientific communities in the same way that there are within the community of religious belief, but there are, there is a reality in which we overlap. I know we don't see those as mutually exclusive. In fact, would be uh, complementary to each other as Christians, but th there isn't like a, um, there is, there isn't a, a, a deviation or a difference there really in what it is that we're bringing about our lives to our observations about reality. Yeah. I mean, there, the, the world is knowable and explorable and there is there's a whole constellation of facts independent of our will and because well, but of see, see this is important to this let me follow up on your idea there because what yeah. we need to clearly say and reiterate is there are things that i believe because they're true there are not things that are true because i believe them correct yep that's the fundamental statement we have to get out there and the and an essential piece of our logical equipment but you know it's but it's also it's also true that we are human beings and we fumble our way forward and there are there are there is the hard 
you know, there are the hard sciences and those disciplines, and we can make contact with reality because of our God-given brains and minds. I would I'd prefer that word. And because the universe is knowable, it's also true to say that we're barely scratching the surface. Some of the most, I mean, we, we're learning more as we as we go, but we there is so much that we don't know, and also all of the all of the scientific facts that we that are reported that are you know discovered that all the times we make contact with reality, we're still human beings doing so. We still we're we're still part of. We, we can't escape that personal human perspective. And that doesn't constitute some terrible dilemma. It do, It did if you're... So here's where the rub comes. If you have inadvertently bought into a kind of enlightenment mindset, which says that you have to have total certainty regarding the world and your place in the world or your knowledge... This comes to us. We're, we're not going to go into this whole history. The favorite whipping boy of a lot of philosophy is Rene Descartes. This this is largely part of his legacy. But you don't need that total one hundred percent certainty. Part of part of being a person is have is being finite, having a limited perspective, and putting your faith into people, institutions, processes. Because you can't know everything. You're not omniscient. And yes, if you're a religious person, sp- spiritual realities. None of that is a none of that is a problem. It was construed as a problem in the past because there there was this there was this strange thing that was happening as the sciences were developing. We were able to to discover some of what Nathan was talking about these these realities that were totally independent of our different emotional perspectives. I mean, this was just hard fact. The behavior of this particular particle remained constant and it was this wonderful thing. So we had this we had this magical consensus it seemed, but then there were all these religious wars in the background. So why can't we have that kind of rock solid 3 plus 3 is 6 consensus on everything? And that's where that's where the trouble came because that's where your categories are so important. When you're, it's one thing when you're observing physical processes, when you're looking at causality. It's another thing when you're looking at the overall questions of significance, why we're here, why we, I mean, we can discover something like a process like nuclear fission. Science will not tell you whether you should or should not do it or <laughs> whether you should yeah, develop sure. it into a hydrogen bomb, right? So we're, we're laying a case here just to catch us all up to speed of looking at the real beauty and value that comes from the ability to process collectively as humanity hows and what's so what is this creature what is the taxonomy of this um how does this cell divide those are things that i think universally i mean there's so there's 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 a pursuit of learning more about those none of those things are capped off totally like we have, there's nothing scientifically. I think, Oh, we've really got this in the box and no, uh, we know enough to treat it as true. That's out there. And we're distinguishing that from the category of the whys and the who's, um, that are also at play in the world. So I think there's, there's pretty uniform. Um, there, there's, there's continuity in the, in the attempt and in the style of pursuing the hows of the physical world, the whys and the who's Mm -hmm. though, are where we diverge. 
And may I ask a question, though, Nathan? What advantage would there be to saying, I bracket my Christian beliefs when I'm here in the laboratory? How, what, how would that be helpful? That's another way of, of coming at this. What would be so, the advantage? Yeah, so the, the advantages or the illusion that you're trying to get away from is to say that I'm going to do my experiments in order to prove a conclusion that I already have. But Christianly speaking, there are very few categories where that would be. Um, so like, what is the conclusion that you have about the world? So, so this is why the, his Professor Dave's critique of James Torres will, will circle back to that. Because he, mm-hmm. that yeah, was his important. argument. That yep. was his argument is to say, look, James Tor believes there is a God who is a creator. And so he's ideologically committed to the idea that life can't begin organically. Yep. So therefore, yeah, he, yeah, that's he's the he, word ideologically committed. He, yep. Yeah. So therefore he, he's saying he's doing this scientifically, but he's using this to justify a belief that he already has. Now this goes right into, you remember all the Jonathan Haidt elephant and the rider kind of thing. Um, that most of the time we have a gut feeling about something and then we work in a post hoc fashion in order to justify our belief. And that the vast majority of the cognitive thinking that we do is to reiterate or to validate a prior commitment that Mm -hmm. we've held subconsciously. So that's all out there. So I think, to give the generous view of it is, is that to make the statement that I'm setting aside my Christian, um, how do you say it? My, not Christian belief, convictions or something. My religious beliefs. Is to say, the the best take scenario on it is, is to say that having done this science, this is still compatible with what I believe as a Christian. Because you could theoretically get there. You could have somebody who says, um, I don't see a scientific pathway forward right now for the spontaneous origin of life, chemically speaking, or chemistry, in the, in, you know, chemically speaking. Yeah. Therefore, it seems like there might be something more out there. Um, perhaps that's, that's the most gracious vision of that that I can give. Well, and this is, and so I'll be less gracious here, just on this one point. This is the one area where I think Dave Farina had a little bit of a point. I think it's talking out of both sides of your mouth to say, I firmly believe there is a God who is a creator of ultimately who created everything. And that's where everything came from. But when I'm a scientist, I don't take that into account. But I also think that origins of origin of life studies are largely, you know, bunk or (laughs) fairly inconclusive. Now they happen to be there, there happens to be a, a real dearth of actual, tangible science there. there. There are a lot of theories. But again, if if you're a Christian, I don't think it should I don't think that should be a problem. Well, you okay. have an ultimate two, view. Two things. Yeah. One is that okay, so Dave has to answer the same question himself. So I don't know he does. the degree yeah, to which his argument is super helpful because James Tor could have turned around and said he's an atheist and he's ideologically committed to the hope that we spontaneously get information. Well, can can I jump in here for two seconds yeah. and say something else that and, and try to explode something else that I think it, so just as I think it's problematic for a Christian to say I occupy this neutral territory when I'm in the workplace, when I put on my historian's hat, when I am a scientist in the laboratory, 
I also don't buy from the skeptic. Well, I'm open-minded. I don't know. I just okay. I'm that's an important statement to make. One. Yeah, yeah. I don't buy that at all. I think that's every. I think that's disingenuous. I think you've got some. You've got some commitments. Whether you're voicing them, you know, whether you're being honest about it, you've got some commitments. You've got some biases. Every you you have a hunch about what happened at origin with the with regard to the origins question, and that's okay. I'm just saying, be honest about it. Yeah, I can go with that. There's nothing wrong with having a hunch about it. There's nothing wrong at all. Now, it's possible to, you know, can we be misled? Of course. Can we be wrong? Of course. That's part of the inherent risk of being a human being. We can we can be wrong. Okay, that's, so again, I'm calling for epistemic humility. Not these gestures that say, well, when I do this, I don't, you know, I don't engage in this kind of thinking. I clear my mind, just like Descartes' third meditation. No, you don't. Is humility the right word there? Or is yes, I think so. Okay, I'm just trying to think through. Yeah, okay, but humility is not a backing off the pursuit of the truth. It's a um, a recognition that you're a, a person with a finite perspective. I mean, a Christian would say, "Now we see things through a glass darkly." And again, that's not a renunciation of our ability to make contact with reality. But epistemic humility would also be, by the way, for a Christian, a Christian. I would hope. We talked about the word community. A Christian, I would hope, and I've seen this unfortunately sometimes, and I get it, some people who have gone through very traumatic religious experiences, for instance, involving maybe a fundamentalist upbringing with abuse or something like that. I've, I've, seen, I've met some individuals who have then said, all right, that's it. I am now going to, I'm going to figure everything out for myself. I'm not going to be dependent on any authority. I will get the, I will figure all of this out myself. And that's a sad position to be in. It's understandable there, but we need community because we get stuff wrong so often. So we, we need to process truth with other people. We need that triangulation that Nathan talked about is so incredibly important. You need your community. You need good sound plausibility structures within which you work. That's, is, that's how the scientific community works. That's how the church, a healthy church works like that too, by the way. What do you do though if like, why would we be surprised so, so what was, I was listening to some politician speaking the other day and he said, I believe that the earth is warming, but that's just my personal belief. And I wouldn't want to force that on anybody else. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah. And, you're like, that's a measurable thing. Like so, nobody else so, has a thermometer. Yeah, yeah. Right. So I'm just, I'm just saying there are some things that we act as if it's a belief when it's measurable. But as Christians, we shouldn't be surprised if what we believe turns out to be true. So there's, there's well, almost well, like, yeah. I guess I'm pushing for a, a, a sense in which, you know, we don't want to run, we don't want to run off of the classic apologetic, or I would say, you know, Christian foundations of truth as being coherent and corresponding to reality. So there's, there's a, a uniquely sticky situation that the Christian gets themselves into when they believe that they do know things that are true and it just so happens that the things that they explore in the physical universe comport with the things that they believe to be true, that would be an indicator that the things they believe are true. So it would be corroboration. We well, if, yeah. yeah. I mean, if Christianity is true, it's, it's Christianity is a comprehensive vision of reality. And so therefore, if Christianity is true and you're confident and assured in your belief, you have proper, proper confidence in your beliefs, then the hard sciences aren't going to present any threat to you. In fact, they will be a compliment. 
The only problem comes in when it's when you see some of the philosophical assumptions that are smuggled in. That's scientism. It's not science. And that's that's it's a that's an very important distinction to make. Scientism is the philosophical commitment basically to a naturalistic explanation of reality. But science itself is the discipline of the hard sciences. Those are two different things. And so is there, that's, I mean, again, this is planting it. Is there a conflict between Christianity and, and the hard sciences? No. Is there con conflict between Christianity and scientism? Well, yeah, because scientism is categorically opposed to Christianity. So yeah, there's a little bit of a problem there. If you're trying to appease people in that category, in the scientific community or in the natural, in the, you know, the naturalistic camp, I think we have a problem. We need to be honest about our assumptions. And if we're aiming at persuasion, absolutely, we should aim at persuasion, but we shouldn't do so by trying to capitulate to some of their assumptions because their guiding assumptions and framework are completely antithetical to Christianity. Well, so, all right, let me, one last question. It might not be the last question, but why do we not, we don't have the same, um, so if I say uh, I am a, a construction, a Christian construction worker, I'm a Christian mm -hmm. doctor. I'm a Christian. Yep. Um, things that have very practical, um, mm -hmm. tangible outworkings of them. By and large, we don't. I mean, so do you ask your dentist to sign a statement of faith, a statement of faith before they work on you? Right. Of course not. No. So there, there are, there are. I think some of those categories where we're like, we don't. It's, it's just odd to me that in some categories we hold this to be a more contentious issue than we do. And mm -hmm. um, do you care if a Jewish person makes your food? Um, you know, like what's mm -hmm. the? So, right. I don't know. Just, just throw that out there to like let's be consistent across categories if we think that somebody's religious belief deeply dictates. Yeah. Now, writing laws for me that's different than baking bread. Um, you know, because now we're into the moral categories of, of the whys and the oughts, not the, the fundamental basics of, um, the hows. Yeah. So I think this is, this is a really rich conversation. This is probably one of the areas that I'm, I find most fascinating in recent years that I've, I've been absolutely captivated by the history of, of science and also the way scientific authority is established over the years. I just, I think it's, it's very interesting to watch that development. And it's also been fascinating to watch Christians and talk with Christians who operate in, in those fields. So all that to say, I think we'll probably come back to this yeah. topic. I think Nathan's got one, something else to say here. Well, I was just, I was just going to say, there's an interesting thing. Part of the reason that we've made an authority out of science is because the public interface with science sees science as so accurate and so correct and so helpful. But the reason for that is, is because there's a phenomenal amount of disagreement within the scientific community before an idea actually gets published and gets put out there. And so there's this whole internal conversation and checks and balances system before an idea actually launches into what most of us engage with. And so uh, it's unsettling for us, I think, sometimes they'll see behind the curtain of how the scientific community process processes processes all work out in order to reach a conclusion. Um, and so to be able to have a community where you can form an idea and then launch that idea into the world is an extremely valuable thing. And I would say is exactly what should be happening 
in our churches where we're spending time together, thinking, discussing, experimental theology, asking questions, pushing back, being curious, researching, and then saying, okay, here is what we believe about this, and this is the way we'll engage the world. And so uh, I hope you can find that community in your life where you're allowed to to uh, act, be an accidental heretic and have somebody say, no, you, I don't think you want to say that because of this. And you say, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. But if we yep. consider this, then that is how we get a more robust and a more accurate depiction um, and therefore a more practical and powerful interaction um, and service to the world around us. So yeah, I see some real parallels there. Will look like- well, yeah, and a healthy tradition will look like that. You'll be able to have robust discussion and argumentation while being committed to the fundamentals. So, for instance, in the hard sciences, you can there can be vigorous debates over the efficacy of, say, string theory, as there are. But you wouldn't if you called into question the legibility of the universe, the fact that the, the physical universe is knowable, then everything comes to a dead stop. We've got to agree on certain fundamental assumptions. And in the world of theological learning and, you know, in, in the church tradition, you have, you have some similar setups as well, where you have, you've got firm lines of orthodoxy, you know, the Trinity, Christ's Lordship, and then you've got some other areas where there's, there is some, there's, it's an important discussion, the truth matters, but there's a little bit more flexibility. Infant baptism is, is an easy one to point to. But I, th- I think the, the word in systematic theology that's used for that, for those secondary issues, is adiaphora. But the point is, you need, you need a community, again, where there is that, you have the roominess to be able to have those vigorous discussions and that peer review process, if you will. <laughs> and then to put, and then that's how we make contact with reality. And that is a tremendous service to the world. And so we're very grateful for that. And the, uh, the scientific community works mu- in much the same way, but it is a community and it's a human institution. And that's okay. I think the fact that that's often received as kind of a, a shock to the system shows that we've got a little bit of a superstitious view of the hard sciences sometimes. I think, again, I think COVID 19 was a case in point. As they were working, there was this sort of arms race to develop a vaccine, and there was amazing collaboration, all that going on. When people would change policies, for instance, mask policies, or or when when they made mistakes, I had I heard a lot of people say, "Well, see, science doesn't know anything." And I thought, "Well, no, you just you don't understand how <laughs> science actually works. It's not magic. <laughs> it's it's trial and error. They're and they're working at a, a rate and a speed that is absolutely mind boggling. <laughs> if you look so, if you look at historical examples, but yeah, yeah do we get it, things wrong? Of course, yeah. And so there, there's a little bit of a sense though in which I think our we're assuming that science progresses unguided toward an unknown future, where if we look at something like the purpose of humanity is to be conformed to the image of the sun, then we have the standard that we're growing toward, yeah. religiously speaking, well, in all in all categories. And so the, the concept of revelation is one that science by and large acts as if isn't there. And so that, those, that would be a, a fundamental dis- distinction between religious epistemology and scientific naturalism so to speak is is there a who is there an agent and does that agent reveal uh in christian sense himself and just injected into the conversation there so we don't want to act like these are total equivalents yeah no they're not and but on a tantalizing note one of the 
famous, world-famous scientists, Albert Einstein. It's amazing to see the T-shirts with him sticking his tongue out and all that. I mean, there's a whole Einstein industrial complex now, but he used the word revelation, actually, quite generously as he was talking about scientific discovery. And at a certain point, you do, you do, it. that brings in a notable tension because at a certain point, the great question, why is there something rather than nothing, announces itself in the scientific field because you have this superabundance of just absolute intricacy and just this vast cosmos and just all of this in just amazing, amazing stuff. Well, and, Where and, did it come from? And worship does not negate exploration. Not if, at all. In fact, yeah, the, the two go hand in hand. Yeah. Ideally right. speaking, yeah. So when you look at yeah, a lot so, of I mean, the worship that the Lord generates because of his physical creation, much of the Old Testament in that category is like, yeah. we don't know. God's awesome. Um, and did when it comes to existence, the sheer isness of everything, the givenness of things, as is the, the phrase that's sometimes been used, did we find it? Or was this, was this a gift to us? <laughs> so, dun, I mean, dun, that's... Dun. Revel, I mean, that's that's a one word for that would be revelation, <laughs> and that's by the way the the revelation of God's created order. This is this is language Paul uses himself, of course, in Romans, and this is I mean, and again, if you're a Christian and you see things Christianly, this makes sense and it's fitting because again, Christianity isn't a set of moral precepts or just a philosophical disquisition. It's a comprehensive vision of of reality. And so we hope this has been helpful to you. Again, we'll probably come back to this because this is a really interesting topic and questions about how the hard sciences and Christianity interact are not going away anytime soon. And maybe at some point we'll, we'll, we'll aim to get an actual scientist on thinking out loud and we'll, and we'll talk to them about some of this and ask them some of these questions. But thanks so much for tuning in. You've been listening to Thinking Out Loud, a podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book Nathan or Cameron, or if you'd like to support us financially, whether through a one-time donation or on a monthly basis, you can do so on the donate page at www.toltogether.com. That's toltogether.com. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating and sharing this content with your friends. It really does help.